0: We're actually going to pick up right where I left off, September 30th. Uh, I ended with uh, John, I ended John chapter 4. There was a healing of an official son. And then, so where we're going to pick up here, it just tells us in verse 1 that uh, this is after this, we're not sure how long after this, but there was a feast of the Jews, and we're not even entirely sure what feast it is, Uh, but so that's the setting. We're going to be back in Jerusalem. Uh, as we break into this, some, uh, this story reminded me a little bit of my father, actually. My father is a very compassionate man. He's, he's kind of gruff, and he's loud, and he's boisterous. And if you were to ever come across him at work, you wouldn't necessarily think he was very compassionate. He's a Denver County Sheriff's deputy. And I've seen the guy work, and he is, he's bossing people around. He's telling them to go here, there, everything. He doesn't seem like he necessarily has a whole lot of compassion, when he's talking to people. But that's not true about my father. My father is actually a really compassionate man. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, one time we were driving uh, down the road and he saw this kid who was being bullied and running from these other kids and he pulls over to the side of the road, tells the kid to get in the car, and then he gives the bullies a piece of his mind and uh, we drove the kid home. Uh, And there was uh, other kids, there were I don't know if any of you guys did Awanas growing up, but Awanas is this thing where you go to church on like a weeknight and there's a game night, and then after the game night you would uh, memorize Bible verses and there would be a lesson. And my dad led that, but he also did something beforehand. He drove a van, like a 12-passenger van around to this neighborhood that was just a, a terrible neighborhood to live in. Most of the kids there lived in broken homes where the dad and mom were alcoholics were drug addicts, and my dad would uh, pick all these kids up and t- bring them to the church. And there was one family in particular, a, a young boy and a young girl, who even amongst those kids were just, uh, they had the rattiest clothes, they smelled awful all the time, um, and yet my dad loved these kids anyway, and he would give them candy, and I remember taking food to them for Thanksgiving and that even translated in uh, to later in life. My dad is still a very compassionate man, even when he's at his job. Last year, the X Games were being held in downtown Denver, and my dad works in the Denver County Courthouse. And there's the courthouse, and they blocked all the streets off around the courthouse. And it was just filled with people, and there were you know the bike ramps and the skateboard ramps and all of that. And uh, he's patrolling through the, the corridors of the courthouse, and he comes across this blind man. And there's a blind man who has come and he's come to pay a ticket. And he's had to work for hours through this crowd that he had, you know, obviously he was having a tough time getting there. And by the time he'd finally made it to the courthouse, uh, the cashier's desk was closed. Only night court was going on for traffic violations. And so this poor man uh, started to get really upset because it meant that the next day he was going to have to come back through the crowd and again try and make it in time to pay this ticket that he had. So my dad asked me, he said, well, where did you, uh, why did you get the ticket? And even the, the way the guy got the ticket was a sad story. He w- had been riding the bus down to, in downtown Denver, and the way it works there, you uh, pay for like a voucher, and then you get on the bus, and then they come through after the bus is moving and check it. Well, sometime between the time he'd bought this and the time he'd sat down, he lost his ticket. And so he'd received a $35 fine. And my dad just really felt bad for this guy. And he said, look, give me the ticket. You don't have to come back here tomorrow. I'll pay the ticket for you, and you don't have to worry about it. So that was what happened. The the next day, my dad went to the cashier. He gave the cashier the ticket, and he paid the fine. Well, sometime later, it got to my dad's superiors that he was paying fines for criminals. So it, it totally got turned around, and he gets called in the office Into his lieutenant's office, and he's like, What did I do wrong? And well, Colburn, is it true that you're paying fines for criminals? My dad is like, What are you talking about? This has no idea what's going on. And then he remembers that he's paid this fine for the blind man. Now, when I heard this story, I I was upset for my dad. I was like, What? You're getting in trouble for this because somebody had gone and and ratted him out. Like, who would do that? My dad was being kind and compassionate toward this poor guy, and yet all he ends up getting out of it is trouble. Uh, When I was reading this, I actually thought, how much worse would it have been if it had been the blind man who had called my father's superiors and said, hey, I just want you to know uh, your sheriff's deputies are are paying fines for criminals. just thought you should know that. We would think that would be awful of that guy to do that, because my dad had just helped him out. And yet that's exactly what we're going to see happen to Jesus today. We're going to see Him get sold out by a man He has just helped. And yet, through that situation, Jesus is going to reveal something absolutely amazing through it. So let's get started in chapter 5, verse 2 now. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, blind, Lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so on the north side of Jerusalem, outside, or at the north side of the wall, there's a, a gate, the sheep gate, and outside that there's this pool. And the pool is actually a double pool. There's two pools, and in between it there's one colonnade, and then on each of the four sides there's another colonnade. Now, a colonnade, uh, if you're wondering what a colonnade is, kind of just think of classical Greek architecture, maybe. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a building that is uh, supported all by columns. So you have these big columns and then a roof over it. If you think about the Parthenon, the Parthenon is a colonnade. Uh, actually, the Quincy Market in downtown Boston there, if you go to that, that's a colonnade. It's got the big four uh, columns and then a roof. My wife and I were actually married in a colonnade in uh, Denver. It's a beautiful site. It's really, these are beautiful buildings normally. And so at first I kind of picture like these two nice pools and uh, these, these nice colonnades all around it. And to me, I almost had this picture of something like you'd see maybe at like uh, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Really nice. You know, you have all the rich people who are uh, sitting around dipping their toes in the pool, drinking wine, getting massages. That kind of thing. But that's not the case here. Uh, this is actually something entirely different. This isn't a nice vacation spa or a nice spa. It's different. Uh, back in the early 70s, a young reporter uh, named Geraldo Rivera got his big break actually working for Eyewitness News in New York. And his, his major story that he actually won an award for was a documentary on uh, the Willowbrook State School there. And the Willowbrook State School was not really a school. It was more like a dumping ground for children with mental disabilities. And when he went inside it and looked inside, all he took the cameras in and all you saw was just many, many children who were malnourished, poorly clothed, if they had any clothing on at all, and there was excrement everywhere. Okay? That is more of the picture you should have when you're, when you're uh, looking at this setting here, okay? These colonnades are filled with people who can't take care of themselves. This isn't a pretty place to be. And it's certainly not a place you would expect anyone of any importance to be. This is a place they would rather pretend just didn't exist. But this is where we find Jesus. And when He's there, He finds a man who has been a, an invalid for 38 years. Years. He has been able to do nothing for himself for 38 years. Verse 6, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So Jesus sees this man here who's been there a long time and he initiates the conversation. He says, do you want to be healed? And like the woman uh, at the well that we heard about two weeks ago, this man clearly has no idea who is standing in front of him. Because his answer is kind of weak actually. If someone asked me uh, if I wanted to be healed of that sickness, I I would think the first thing out of my mouth would be, yes, I would like to be healed of this, please. And instead he starts talking about the pool. Now the story around the pool was that when the waters were stirred up, the first person into that pool would be healed. Well, this guy has no hope of that. He can't get up on his own. He can't get down there in time to beat anyone down there. And he doesn't have anybody to pick him up and take him down there to get down there anyway. So this guy, he has no hope really. And yet his greatest hope is standing right in front of him. And he doesn't even know it yet. Okay? I think Jesus almost could have said something similar to like he said at the woman at the will. He said, if you knew who it was that asked you, do you want to be healed? You would have been like, yes! And I would have healed you. But Jesus doesn't reveal Himself to this man. He doesn't reveal who He is. He just says to the man, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And after 38 years of this man being on the ground, not being able to take care of himself, having to depend on other people for money, for food, and all of that, that's what He does. He gets up, He takes up His mat, and He walks away. Never finding out. Who Jesus is. At least not yet. Continuing on in verse, uh, the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. So the man uh, is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was actually instituted by God a long time ago. So we shouldn't see the Sabbath and think of it as a bad thing. The Sabbath is actually a good thing. It's a great thing. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, we are told He rested, and He made that day holy. And that day was supposed to be a great day for the people who believed in God. Think about that day. It's a day where you rest. You take it off of work. You're not worrying about bills. You're not worrying about. Uh, you know, you're not worried. In my case, I'm not. Wouldn't be worried about grading papers or. Calling students' parents to tell them their son or daughter's failing. You don't have to worry about any of that. And better than that, it's not just a day of rest, it's a day where you get to rejoice in God and enjoy his presence and worship him. uh, Joey and I actually have a lot of discussions about having Sabbaths. We're like, oh man, the other day I got a great Sabbath. All right, I know a couple weeks ago Joey got to sit. Uh, on a a Saturday, and he he laid on his couch, and he watched some movies, and he enjoyed his Saturday. Yeah, I think Joffrey was preaching the next day, so he didn't have to worry about anything. And tomorrow, uh, because today is Veterans Day, tomorrow I have off of school, and you better believe that tomorrow is going to be a Sabbath for me. I am going to sleep in, I am going to enjoy uh, the presence of my Creator and my Savior and I'll probably watch a soccer game that I recorded yesterday. All right, it's going to be a great day. And that's what the Sabbath was meant to be. It was meant to be a beautiful day of rest where God's people could worship Him and enjoy Him. Now, leave it to sinful man, though, to take something that is meant to be beautiful and joyous and just completely flip it around on its head and make it to be a burden. Okay, we see this all the time. I, Marriage, okay, marriage should be this beautiful thing that everybody enjoys. In fact, we had a great wedding last night when Andy and Amanda got married, and we enjoyed it and we celebrated that. But so much of our society said, no, marriage is not a joyous thing. Marriage is a lot of work. It's not a lot of fun. It's not something anybody should ever really do unless you absolutely have to. Hey, that's the, what we do with beautiful gifts from God, and that is what had happened to the Sabbath. The religious leaders had said, well, God said, all right, you're not going to work on the Sabbath, so what does it mean to work? So they started defining what it meant to work, and they came up with some really ridiculous things when you read their writings. Things like you couldn't lift something over your head on the Sabbath. You could lift it, but if you didn't lift it over your head, that was okay. But as soon as you lift it over your head, oh, that was work. Okay, that's work. Or you could lift things around your house and that kind of stuff, but you couldn't lift things in public. That's work. If your tooth hurts, you cannot take vinegar. That was how they treated it. That You couldn't take vinegar to help the pain in your tooth. But if you were cooking and you put vinegar in your food for the day because you still had to eat, that was okay. If you put vinegar in the food, it heals your tooth. No big deal. That's not work. But if you take it specifically for your tooth, not okay. So they have taken... Something that should have been wonderful and joyous. And they've just put all these restrictions on it. And so now, instead of saying, yes, this is a great day. This is more of a day where you're like, okay, how am I not going to get in trouble with everybody today? How am I not going to look bad today? So the Sabbath had become something that was completely flipped on its head. And they called a man out on it. All right, now obviously Jesus, the Son of God, has commanded him to take up his bed, so he's not sinning by carrying this bed uh, around. Uh, But the the crowd says, You're breaking the Sabbath. This is unlawful. And the guy kind of chickens out a little bit. He's like, It wasn't me. All right, this guy, the guy who healed me, he told me, It's not my fault I'm carrying this, he told me to do it. And it works. They're like, all right, who is this guy? Because we need to go after him. If he healed you, he broke the Sabbath, and then he's commanded you to break the Sabbath as well. Who is this guy? We need to know. The man, though, had no idea. He had been healed. He popped up. And I'm sure when everybody had seen a guy who had been on the ground for 38 years pop up, pick up his mat, start walking away, the crowd moved in pretty quick. That is big, exciting news. And Jesus was able to just slip out through the crowd. So the man has no idea who he is. But Jesus isn't done with this man. Jesus isn't just going to let him go off, never knowing what it is he's done, who it is that has done this for him. So he finds him at the temple. And he says to him, See, you are healed. Go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So there's an implication here. There's an implication that Jesus is saying that uh, the condition he is in very well may have been a result of this man's sin. That's not something we like to hear. We too often, especially uh, people I talk to in the Boston area, if there is a God to them, he's certainly not someone who punishes people for sin. They, they, They view him kind of as... Uh, This big hippie in heaven who's just like, man, it's all about love, man. That's all it is. God is not that way. God is holy and perfect. And there are consequences and punishments for sin. Now, I'm not saying in any way that every sickness or every injury is a result of a specific sin. We see very clearly actually later on in John where there's a blind man and they ask him, who sinned that this man is blind? He said, no one sinned. You know, his blindness is not a direct result of one of his sins. That's not the case. So That's not what I'm saying either. But there are certainly cases where people are specifically punished for their sins. We can see it even in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. But beyond that, he says, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, thinking about that, what is worse than laying on the ground for 38 years, totally dependent on other people for everything? What what worse could happen to him? This guy probably doesn't have 38 years left to live. The life expectancy was not that long back then. He probably doesn't have that much more time. But Jesus isn't referring to something uh, that's going to happen to him in time physically. Now Jesus is pointing to the deeper reality that if people continue on in a life of sin, and they never repent, and they never place their faith in Him, then they are going to spend an eternity in torment and hell. That's what Jesus is really pointing to here. This is very, very serious. And He is telling this man, He is saying, go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. God is not someone who sits there and just shrugs off sin. Sin was a big deal, and to deal with it, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to pay for it. So we shouldn't just look at sin and laugh it off and shrug it off and think that it doesn't matter to God. That's certainly not the case. But the man uh, doesn't appear to really heed Jesus' words because he leaves from here and he goes directly to the Jews. Now when we hear Jews, all of Jesus' disciples, all of his followers, uh, for the most part, they were Jewish. When we see this, when he goes to tell the Jews, think these are people who are Jesus' opponents. So it would have included a lot of the religious leaders, but it would have included a lot of everyday people as well. So he goes to them as soon as he finds out who Jesus is. And then he says, it's that man. That is the man who healed me, but that's also the man who told me to work on the Sabbath. Okay, so picking back up now uh, in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. So now they know who they're looking for. They know who it is who had both broken the Sabbath by doing the healing and commanded this man to break the Sabbath, again, at least in their minds. Jesus has not actually broken the Sabbath. Let me make that very clear. But, at least in their minds, He has. Uh, and so, what did they do? They persecute Him. They, they, they didn't take this lightly. So now they are going after Jesus. And His response to them when they've come to Him is uh, actually rather incredible he says but jesus answered them my father is working until now and i am working okay this whole passage of scripture has been leading up to this point it has been leading up to jesus saying my father is working till now and i am working okay, this means some serious things Joey has told us before, uh, but I'm going to reiterate it here, that it was common for the people in that time to call God our Father. But it was something entirely different for Jesus to say, My Father. Because now He is saying, I am God's Son. He is putting Himself on a level with God. That's not okay with them at all. And Jesus knew what He was doing this whole time. He knew what day it was. When he healed that man, he knew what day it was when he told the man to pick up his mat and walk okay, we 're going to see this actually a lot that Jesus does healings on the Sabbath because he is uh, he is pointing out an error in their theology basically of how they view what the Sabbath is, and he uses it so often to reveal who he is and we 're going to see even uh, in in the future here. Where Jesus asks them flat out, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in front of a crowd of people? And then uh, then when they don't respond, he goes ahead and he heals a person right in front of them. So Jesus knows what he is doing here. He knew what day it was. And he, he has brought this attention so that he can reveal this. That he is the Son of God. He has come down and he reiterates it even not just by saying my father but he is equating the works that God is doing to the work he is doing he's saying these are the same works now there's a whole bunch of implications great implications that come from this Uh, but I'm not going to get into those today because we're going to hear about the that next week but I just want us to think about that for a minute that God's son is came down to this earth to live amongst people who were going to betray Him, and yet He came to die for them and to die for our sins. That He came so that that man did not have to go on living a life of sin. He came so that that man didn't have to have anything worse happen to Him. And He came so that we didn't have to go on living a life of sin. And that we didn't have to have anything worse happened to us. It's a brilliant, glorious thing that Jesus coming down, the Son of God coming down to earth, He came down to save those who would believe in Him. That their sins would be forgiven. He came that we actually could have a permanent Sabbath. Because there is coming, we're told, in Hebrews 4, a Sabbath rest. For the people of God. It's going to be one at the end of this life. Where you stand before God. And if your faith is in Jesus. You are going to enter into a permanent Sabbath. No more are you going to have to worry about. Uh, you're not going to have to worry about providing for yourself. You're not going to have to worry uh, about you taking care of your family. That's all going to be taken care of. You're not going to have to worry about balanced uh, bouncing your budget and sticking to it. Uh, you're not going to have to worry about... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, that's a, a big one nationally as well as, uh, as, well as in our own families. Hey, that is all going to be taken care of. We are not going to have to work to, to take care of ourselves anymore. And instead, we're going to be permanently in God's presence if our faith is in Jesus, worshiping Him and enjoying that. Hey, this life is a grind. It is a lot of work. I think we can all attest to that. My grandfather was a man who worked very hard his whole life. From the time he was little, um, he, well, he grew up in Oklahoma and in a more rural area, and he had to work hard, but he had to work extra hard because when he was a young boy still, his mom had triplets. And his mom basically charged him with raising these triplets. He said, You've got to take care of them. She would feign illness for three, four, or five days at a time and not get out of bed. And my grandfather had to be both father and mother to him because his father was never around. So he had to work raising these kids up. Shortly after he turned 18, he joined the Navy for World War II. And he went and he worked. Uh, uh, with the radar machines back then, uh, which at the time was, was much more top secret. Uh, you know, he couldn't talk about a lot of, what, of the technology he was working on, and that just added more to him. He worked very hard doing that. After that, he went to work as a mechanic for American Airlines. And he carried the weight of the responsibility for the passengers that were going to be on the planes that he was working on. He knew if he messed up that hundreds of lives were at stake. And he carried that. After that, uh, after he retired from American Airlines, he actually had his own woodworking business where he would make wooden toys and picture frames. And he had an apple orchard that he would care for, uh, pruning it, picking the apples, spraying it for bugs, selling the apples. My grandfather worked very hard his whole life. And then when my grandmother came down with melanoma, he worked hard taking care of her for many years until it finally claimed her life. And at the end of his own life, one of the last things he said to my mom was, I'm ready to go. I'm tired. I am ready to see God. He had come to faith in Jesus and he knew that what was waiting for him on the other side of death was actually life and a restful life where he wasn't charged with taking care of kids that he was way too young to be in charge of, where people's lives were not on his shoulders. He was ready for that rest. I want us to look forward to that day where we too can enter that rest, enter into that Sabbath. But it only comes when you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came down, who died on the cross for our sins. I want us to be a church who goes out and tells people about that great news. Because there are hundreds of thousands of people right around us and millions of people in the Boston area who need to hear that. They need to hear the gospel. They need to repent of their sins and they need to come to faith in Jesus. Otherwise, at the end of this life, they don't get to enter into that rest. Instead, they will be eternally tormented in hell. We don't want that. That is not what we want. We want many people to come to faith in Jesus. We want many people to spend eternity with us, rejoicing, resting, Worshiping God.